Welcome back to season two of Gold Ribbon Conversations, the podcast created to support families fighting childhood cancer in Ireland. Six children, adolescents and young adults are diagnosed with cancer every week in Ireland and the Gold Ribbon, which illuminates precious light, love, courage and compassion, is a symbol of strength and solidarity for each and every one. My name is Sinead O'Moore and it is my privilege to bring you this podcast on behalf of Childhood Cancer Ireland, a charity founded by and led by parents of children with cancer and survivors who know that one of the greatest sources of strength for this fight is conversation. Throughout this podcast, I talk to families impacted by childhood cancer, as well as the experts who care for our children's health, education and happiness. Yes, we talk about the fear and the pain, but we also talk about the hope and the friendship and the community that exists here because you are not alone. Childhood Cancer Ireland values every single donation while on its mission to help more children, adolescents and young adults survive cancer and thrive as adults and support all those dealing with the long-term effects of illness and trauma. You can help by sharing this podcast and by texting GOLD to 50300 and donating €4 Euro or visit childhoodcancer.ie for more. Clinical psychologist Dr. Mally Coyne is the author of best-selling book Love In, Love Out, written as a compassionate approach to parenting an anxious child. And she joins us in this episode to answer your questions. Through our Instagram page at Childhood Cancer IRE, we collected your questions and here tackle some of the resounding issues from parental anxiety, to supporting siblings, to finding space for you and having difficult conversations. There is so much more going on for families fighting cancer than the cancer itself. And here we hope you can begin to find support for your mental health too. Dr. Mally Coyne, thank you so much for joining us on Gold Ribbon Conversations. We find it really important on this series to make sure that we are introducing lots of voices of parents who are going through this journey. But also, you know, we had Alex on, who is a minor who is going through this journey and also experts who can in some way support families that are experiencing and fighting childhood cancer. You are one of those people that we have invited on to try and help relieve, I suppose, some of the mental anxiety that parents and as they support their kids are feeling when it comes to fighting cancer. It's lovely to be here, Sinead, really is. Thank Thank, you. Thank you for being that person for us. Um, I'm learning out so much around this journey from from hosting this season and the first thing that I would feel as a parent myself is simply how do you even begin to process the cancer journey as a parent? Um, That's a really hard one Sinead. Um, I think everybody's journey and everybody's relationship with uh, their child being diagnosed with cancer is a different one, is a unique one to themselves. Of course, there's commonalities there. And a lot of parents get uh, relief from hearing other people's stories. And sometimes they might not because their own child's story is individual to, the, to their own. Um, when I was preparing for this podcast, I had a number of chats with um, parents uh, who have been in the situation. And one of the things that they would have said is you can't process it. It's almost like you, you don't know when your child is diagnosed, um, how long this journey is going to be in the first place, um, what, you know, what course it's going to take. You want to know what the end answer is. You want to know that your child is going to be OK and live a long and happy life, which is all we want for our children. I'm a parent. I've got a nine and an 11 year old and I love them to bits. And, you know, I think about them now, but I think about their futures as well. And we all do that as parents. We project into the future. We think about, you know, we make decisions now that will impact on them in the future. So we we want we want to protect our little babies from the time that they're born. 
and then you hear that your child has cancer first see that they're sick and that there might be a there might even be like there's a, often a time span between finding out that they're sick or they have symptoms and actually finding out that they have a diagnosis so I remember you interviewed Orla Donlan for one of your previous podcasts and she said that that waiting time was the worst time because it was like she was feeling so strongly that there was something wrong or amiss but she didn't have the answer that made it really difficult the kind of waiting period not knowing and and then you know do I listen to my gut instinct do I not um and then finding out that your child has this diagnosis I mean I kind of liken it to I looked up the word trauma and the definition for it again today and a trauma is an event or a series of events either witnessed or experienced that represents a fundamental threat to an individual's physical safety or survival. Now, if you think of us as human beings and how we're programmed to look after our children, our babies, or right, not just when they're young, but when they're older as well, like we're doing it until the day that we pass away or we pass on, um, to, to know that your child is, has a diagnosis or has been diagnosed with something that you're really not sure what the outcome of that is going to be, how much pain they're going to be in, what's going to happen, what's going to happen from here. Um, another thing a, a, a parent told me was that she felt that she'd lost part of who she was, lost part of herself. She became a stranger in her own life. The lines kept changing, she said. So it's like, that's the thing. This is a trauma for many parents um, because you don't actually know, even when you get the diagnosis, like everyone, obviously, as a parent, you want to know, like, how long is, you know, when are they going to be better? And how long is this going to be? But the thing is, very often doctors can't tell you that because they don't know how your child is going to respond to certain treatments and drugs and and there's so many different variables that it's hard for them to give you an answer. And very often parents have other children as well, and they have their own lives before they ever had this diagnosis. So it's almost like you hear of their lives pre-diagnosis and their lives post-diagnosis and how it impacts. It's like something explodes and they don't quite, it's very difficult for them to process. And there's so many different feelings like shock go on for a long time and that can be very protective shock can be very protective when something is so hard hitting that your body and your brain can't process it and then all of the different emotions can arise as well anger sadness um guilt shame uh loneliness um anxiety anxiety being a huge one for what might come in the future so I, I kind of think the answer to that question is you it's you can't process it. It's it's important to take it day by day. I know that Orla, that parent, the parent, lovely parent in your episode said that taking it, she she was given advice by her mother, which she found hard to kind of take in this idea of trying to take it day by day Um and that we don't really know what tomorrow is going to bring to any of us, which, but at the, so in other words, rather than wishing the time away, of course, you want to know your child's going to get better. That's all you want to know, but it's, you're, you're still in this right now. And it's kind of day by day and trying to find, I suppose, the supports that you can for you on a day-to-day -day basis and knowing, I suppose, that you're not alone you're not alone, even though you might feel very alone in it. It almost feels like telling yourself you should be processing it is an impossible task and just an extra pressure to putting be putting on yourself. Maybe it's not to be processed right now. Maybe it's just to be survived. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, the definition of trauma is talking about, you know, a physical, a fundamental threat to your physical safety or survival. What do we do when we're in survival mode, when there's a fundamental threat? Because, you know, being told your child has a diagnosis of cancer is a fundamental threat to your individual safety or survival. It is because we are biologically programmed to protect our children. And, you know, you hear like, 
even when I'm walking the kids into school today, I will never let them walk on the street side. Hmm. And they're always like, mommy, would you stop? I'm going to walk. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're my cubs. You're my cubs. You're good. You know, I don't care what age you are. You're still like, I just, if anything, if a car came up on the footpath, I want it to hit me first. Hmm. And I know that's like, it's just programmed in us. So in other words, finding out that your child has a diagnosis is a fundamental threat to your safety and your survival. And you get go into fight or flight freeze mode, which is a very, which is kind of comes from the amygdala at the back of your, your ears. And it's your fight or flight mode. It's your, you know, I need to just survive and do the things that I absolutely need to do right now. Uh, to keep to keep things afloat and that's completely uh, a very normal reaction to be in that fight or flight mode and I suppose it's important maybe to try not to think of what is going to happen in the next few years but that's very hard done you're going to live what you're going to live but just knowing that being in that survival mode is absolutely uh, the natural way. And, and when we're in survival mode, it's very hard to think rationally. It's almost mm-hmm. like we need our brain to calm before we can think rationally again. I, I suppose we can't blame ourselves or you can't blame yourself for having the natural reactions you have. As part of this, we reached out to the community on Childhood Cancer Ireland's Instagram page and we asked people to submit their own specific questions around the topic in the hope that you would be able to use your deep knowledge in terms of supporting our or or in supporting our mental health to give some advice in terms of your expertise on how we can. And of course, we must say every single person's situation is different. Uh, where you're coming from and I suppose the, the the different traumas that you may have even experienced in your old life before this cancer diagnosis will impact how you are going to process everything that's happening right now. Um, but some of the questions actually were very familiar to me from having from having had these conversations so far. Some of them dealing, you know, and we'll go into them now, but some of them you know, asking around, well, how do I cope when there's good news? I'm so locked into this bad news phase. Some of them being around, how do I still be a parent to my children who are not going through this? You know, the extent of the guilt and the, you know, the paternal and the parental and the maternal overwhelms that exist within our within our psyches still remain. So I think the phrasing of this question really caught my eye because it's, is it normal it starts with, is it normal? And I can imagine, oh my goodness, how so many of the first questions and concerns that are happening in, in people's heads right now are, is this normal? And I'm sure you, the expert, hearing it all the time is, yes, it is. The question is, is it normal to be constantly terrified that you will hear bad news, even though all is going really well with treatment? I would say to you as a parent, I would say absolutely it is normal and it is, uh, you know, like biologically it is part of our survival system. We all have what's called a tricky brain. It's a threat focused brain where we focus more on threat than we do on anything else in order to keep us alive. So, you know, an example of that is um you know constantly on the lookout for danger you know if you gave a talk and 99% of people 99 people said you did great and one person said you did badly you're going to focus on the one person who said you did badly it's just the way our brains work so it's absolutely normal and usual that if you were in a state of being terrified and terrified is quite a a, a big word and quite a like serious emotion that you'll hear bad news and this is about somebody that means the world to you your child because our children mean everything to us um that your threat focused brain would remain in that threat mode even after the danger has passed because that's the way our threat focused brains work we we have to see threat first. And if you have had a lot of threats come your way during, you know, your child having, you know, going through the active phase of cancer, um, 
then the threats just kept coming and your brain had to prepare itself for the next threat. So you would most likely go into appointments thinking the worst that, you know, I have to prepare myself for the worst. I have to prepare myself for the worst because anything better than that will feel, you know, I'll be able to manage that, but I just have to prepare myself for the worst. And it's almost like we just automatically do that as human beings. And it's to do with our fight or flight freeze response that I already spoke about. And um, the fact that sometimes when we have experienced a lot of threats, we're in this kind of constant threat mode where even like burnt toast can smell like there's a, a fire, like there's a building on fire. So in other words, it's just our, it's, it's kind of our fight, flight, freeze mode comes into action, which means that this parent, for instance, is going into appointments, you know, maybe less frequently because things are going well with treatment. And they're going in with that expectation of today is the day that I'm going to hear bad news. It was too good for too long. And today is the day we're going to hear bad news. Um, preparing themselves for that. It's like the bad news was the, the, the building on fire and it, they might be coming in there and looking at the doctor, you know, picking up on all their body language, you know, like maybe even the waiting time, how long they have to wait or how the appointment was set up or any, any other factors that might lead them to believe that today is going to be bad news because that is just the way things are going to go. That's where my threat focused brain is. And I suppose it kind of just shows you that you can't just come out of an active phase of cancer and, and even when your child is getting better and just expect your brain, which has been doing what it needed to do for you, which was remaining in, in threat focus to survive. It's very hard to suddenly switch your brain. It's almost like the way people were asking us to switch our brains when lockdown stopped during the pandemic. It was kind of like, oh yeah, we're all going back to normal now. Off you, you know? go now. <laughs> yeah. And even teenagers, you know, like they were, I remember a parent saying to me, my child's, my teenager's life was a Zoom in a room for like two years. And then you expect them to just go out in the world and be with friends again. We can't expect our threat focused brains that are there doing a very valuable job for us, but sometimes can be overly tricky to kind of just switch and go into, oh, well, everything is fine now because it would be doing us a disservice if it did that, because how, how well would we be prepared if things went bad again and mm. so we have to be prepared but that's not to say that that's a good thing Sinead because mm. I suppose we have three emotional circles one is threat one is drive and the other one is soothing and a lot of the clients that I see like say the the threat one is anxiety it's thinking about the future and it's the one that this what this this person this parent is asking about then there's drive it's helping us our drive circle helps us to do things to get on with things to, to you know to be uh, driven and then we have our soothing circle which is all about our bonding with other people our connections and also minding our ourselves and what can happen when our threat circle gets very big this woman or I'm saying woman it could well I don't know why that's just a like a pre-judgment this parent is talking about being terrified and so therefore that parent's threat circle is very big and their soothing circle generally kind of shrinks as a result of that mm. because if you're in threat mode you're not really thinking about how you're feeling where you're at how this has impacted you you just want your child to be okay you're not you as we said earlier when you're in fight flight freeze you're not in the mode of rational how am I doing right now you're in the mode of oh my god as long as my kid's fine I'm fine but actually our bodies don't forget I mean Bessel van der Kolk wrote an amazing book on trauma the body keeps the score so trauma gets locked into our bodies and in a way we have to do some work to unlock that trauma because it is a trauma so yes, it is entirely normal, but nor should you stay locked. What are the ways with which 
parents can begin the work of unlocking themselves and, and releasing out of freeze? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, if you go back to the three circles and I talk about them a lot in, in my book, they, they come, by the way, from compassion focused therapy, which is a therapy that I'm absolutely obsessed with. Um, because it talks about the way we are as human beings and normalizes the way our brains work rather than kind of berate ourselves for having, you know, a lot of parents berate themselves for having these feelings. That's normal why this, feelings. <laughs> yeah. This parent is saying, is it normal? Is there something wrong with me? Mm. Do you know, that's what this parent is asking. And there can be such a relief firstly in knowing it is normal and there's nothing abnormal and you are not alone in feeling in feeling that way. So it's kind of even the parent asking this question. And by the way, it's called anticipatory anxiety. So it actually has a word. Um, and we also have anticipatory grief that happens to us as well, where, where we think something, you know, grief is going to happen in the future. But um, the, the first thing is the realization that you you go into that threat mode whenever you're going to go to your next appointment or that you find it difficult that even though your child seems to be doing well that you're still kind of locked where you where you were before and I think that's it's important then to start working on your soothing circle and your soothing circle is that idea of self-care of self-compassion of tuning into yourself and kind of going where am I at at the moment how am I feeling um, how's my body feeling? How's my stomach feeling? How's my, you know, you're kind of, because like trauma and all of this kind of can lock inside your body. So it's becoming aware of how your body feels in these kind of trigger moments where you might uh, be reminded of your child's sickness or else you find it hard to even stop thinking about that. You find it hard to re-engage with the world around you. Um, I mean, I think some parents need professional support around that. Some parents would find it helpful to have one or two close friends or family members that they can talk to about that. Um, in my book, I divide self-care in like five separate sections. And I, I call, I have a, like a, I talk about like, um, parental self-care isn't a one-time chore that you need to take off so you can get off get on with the next item on your long list. It's the intentional care of your physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual, and social well-being through repetition of everyday practices. Together, these elements combine to nurture you as a human being and as a parent and facilitate your fun you functioning at your optimum. So it's not self-indulgent, it's an act of survival, in fact, because I also always quote this, um, this, uh, 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 sorry, I'm just, uh, he's a Holocaust survivor and he talks about between stimulus and response, there is a space. Um, and in our space lies that, in that space lies our growth and our freedom. And I suppose the whole idea is it's very hard not to live in automatic fight, flight, freeze response if we don't inject self-care into our lives and the intentional care of ourselves, because otherwise we're just going to react to things without knowing why we're reacting. Because every single action that happens, we have a choice in how we react. But what I keep saying to people is, unless you fill your cup, and I'm showing you a mug at the moment, Sinead, unless you fill it, you have nothing to kind of, in your cup, to be able, you don't have enough kind of juice in there to be able to have a choice in how you react to any given situation so next time something bad happens or you know life happens with your children mm -hmm. if you don't have any juice in your cup then you're going to react in a very automatic way that mightn't be the way you would have liked as well the cup would crack it would it would and that's why it's not people talk about oh it's it's about eating chocolate cake. I mean, I think self-care, that whole idea has been in, in the media, has been, in a way, I think it's kind of overused, this whole idea mm. of, oh, it's self-care. And I think people have forgotten what the scientific background to it is. And the scientific background for me is, you've got the, the, high, the big threat circle. And in order to reduce your threat circle, you have to 
start working on your soothing circle, mm -hmm. which is looking after yourself, which is bonding with other people. Uh, you know, that is absolutely essential because otherwise your threat circle will not reduce in size. And I've met so many parents who said to me, I don't even know what to do to, I don't even know what I like doing anymore. Do you know, like you kind of lose yourself when you become a parent anyway, you probably even feel guilty doing anything for yourself, going for coffee, having a laugh with a friend, uh, you know, doing something that you used to enjoy doing, or you might think, oh, like, I like going for walks, but I don't have time because I have to do this thing for my child um, and I won't go. But there's always going to be an after effect to that. So what I'm saying to every parent out there is if you can't do it for yourself, do it for your child. But please do it for yourselves because um, because the greatest gift you can give your child is is you your cup being filled enough so that you're able to be there for them and their emotions and the roller coasters that come with being a parent. And every parent, of course, is different. And every parent, you know, you could be in a relationship with somebody whose self-care looks completely different to yours. And so I, I like to hear you're not being too prescriptive, actually, on in terms of, you know, all you're saying is think of that soothe circle and what is it for you? Mm -hmm. What makes up that soothe circle for you? You know, for some, it's, you know, it's connecting with with women, you know, as you said, going for that walk, you know, for some, it's that, you know, jumping into the sea moment and having that, you know, invigoration for some, it's not talking. For some, it is talking. Like, we're all unique in how we find soothing. If you are in a relationship where both parents are obviously trying to process this trauma, but aren't necessarily finding common ground, like, again, it's about normalizing the fact that that's probably also really normal and that's probably also really okay and you can find individual ways to do that for yourselves absolutely I mean every parent is going to process something like this differently men and women and I'm not trying to be like prescriptive and say but you know men and women process things very very differently as well um and so therefore it's important. I mean, when you're in that survive moment, it's it would be hard for you to even hear me talk about self-care. You're kind of like, I don't have time for this. You mm. might react very kind of uh, in a negative way to what I'm saying, which is understandable when you're in fight or flight mode. But when you have that little bit of space, when you're starting to come out of that fight or flight, that's when I'm saying th that finding those little moments the things that make you even just remembering back to what you used to enjoy before you became a parent or before you became, uh, you know, before you were even in your couples, but certainly before you became a parent or before you had this diagnosis or your child's diagnosis. And yes, every the parents, I suppose, being open with whatever your partner or husband or wife whatever soothes them is important for them. I suppose as long as sometimes we can self-soothe in ways that are not positive, Sinead. Yeah, yeah. Like sometimes, okay, we all grab a bit of chocolate sometimes and maybe a glass of wine. But if you start to do things that are impacting on you in a really negative way, well, that's not going to be, going to continue being soothing in a positive way. And that's why in my book, I talk about like the Lotus of self-care and I actually have a Lotus tattooed on my arm here. I, my fifth tattoo that I got done after 25 years of not having tattoos. And now I'm pretty obsessed, but it's kind of like, that's why I have an exercise. If anybody wants to email me directly or go onto my website and I'll send you the exercise if you want to get started on this. And I, I talk about the intentional care of the lotus of self-care and I explain why I use this lotus but it kind of goes I, I talk about the different aspects of self-care which are the physical psychological social spiritual emotional and how people can maybe work on one of those and try to figure out what can I 
what is my intention with one of these aspects of self-care and how am I going to make that happen? So if your intention is I want to go for a walk in in the morning, well, how are you going to make that happen? Do you need mm. somebody to look after a child or your, your child or or do you need to kind of like make yourself do it by going, OK, well, I'm not going to I'm not like this is what I do. I'm not actually going to come home. I'm going to park near the house so that I go for a walk. Because if I if I park the car at the house, I'll go inside and I won't go for a walk. Do you know what I mean? So sometimes we have to and we have to allow our partners and enable them to do what 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 soothes them as well, because we all go through this in different ways and they have a right as well as we do. You know, they might you know, whatever they like doing, I suppose you're trying to work out because in at the in the long run, this will be good for your relationship, but for your children as well. Childhood Cancer Ireland is a charity founded by parents and survivors who have walked this path and are now dedicating their time to supporting you. They know what they needed. They know how hard it was to take in all the information. They know how lonely it can be and they know how in time, how valuable it is to connect with someone who shares what you're feeling, thinking and fighting. They are your voice and they invite you to join Friends of Childhood Cancer Ireland to keep up to date with news, events and any developments regarding childhood cancer in Ireland. It's free to join and you will receive a regular newsletter with updates on their work and services, as well as international developments and stories from families of children, adolescents and young adults with cancer, both during and post-treatment. They will also feature stories from survivors and families dealing with bereavement, as we remember all children who've passed away. You'll find a link to join Friends of Childhood Cancer Ireland in the show notes. We are all fighting childhood cancer together. One of the other very resonating questions that came in to us was, um, how do you, so as your child is aging and as your child is becoming that little bit more conscious of what's happening, a little less go with the flow as they might be in infant stage, their own trauma, their own uh, fight, flight, threat, their threat circle begins to take on much more like a strong consciousness within them. And as parents, I'm sure looking on that as your child is growing up and and understanding this more and seeing the anxiety rise in them, how, how as a parent can you try and alleviate that, you know, accept that it's also again a very natural response for what's happening but how you know you don't as a parent you don't want to see your child go through this physically but now also compounding it with mentally yeah it's it's really tough and I think um as they get older and and you know if they continue to be affected by cancer obviously their developmental stage is changing, you know? So like where before maybe you were able to bring them into their appointments and maybe not say all that much to them about what was going on or, or whatever it was that you had chosen to say. I know some parents choose not to say the word cancer, for instance, um, as they get older, I think the most important thing is not to assume as a parent, you know what your child is feeling. So you might be feeling awful or you might be thinking their silence is to do with um you know their diagnosis but actually and and it could be your first child so you mightn't have had a teenager before or tween before but you know we all I suppose know that uh as children get older they go through developmental stages and that can really impact on their mood and their brain develops at huge rates when they're teenagers as well and so Therefore, you know, their mood can change. It's almost like they go in on themselves and that can be a very normal teenage response um, and may not be to do with their cancer diagnosis or a fear of what might be coming up for them. So whilst you might be fearful, they may not be. They might be upset that somebody was mean to them in school or they weren't invited to an outing or whatever's going on for them. So I suppose... The most important thing is not to assume and to, you know, like I often say, if you want to know how your child is feeling, ask them. But it's important to ask your child or to try to decipher from them how they're feeling about 
anything, do you know? So it's like, you know, I've noticed you've been uh, a little bit more quiet lately or that you you don't seem to, uh, you, you didn't seem to uh, kind of happy yesterday or you were, you went to your room and you didn't really want to talk or whatever. And I'm just wondering, are, are you okay? You know, and maybe, and, and talking to teenagers can be very different to younger kids. They say it can be more useful and constructive to actually speak to them side, side to side, not face to face, not looking at them in the eyes. It can feel quite intense for them. They don't necessarily want the long chat. So use the opportunity to collect them from school. Or yeah, from is that wherever. why conversations in the car are so... Yeah. I remember as a teen, I would tell my parents more if I'm sitting in the car than I would if we were across the dinner table. Totally. And I like my husband often collects the kids from school. And by the time they're home and by the time like when I was, was working, like I, I now work in the home, but when I was working outside the home, when I'd come home at six, like it was like they didn't have the chat anymore. And I was like, oh, my God, I haven't heard what happened to them. Whereas you hear everything when they're coming home. So I think, you know, having the kind of casual chat with them uh, or else going for a walk with them or being interested in what they're doing as well. Like if they're into TikTok or in whatever they're doing, just show interest in that. You might know anything about it, but just ask, just say, oh, you know, uh, what are you spending time doing or whatever? Just kind of continue that relationship moving with your child because it's then that you'd be able to talk to them about. So uh, how are you feeling about that appointment next week? Or what do you think yourself? And, oh, well, you know, I'm okay. And, and then I talk about like, if they are worried about something, unpackaging the worry, unpacking it. So kind of going, oh, well, if a, if a child says, I'm worried about the hospital next week, asking them, like, rather than taking that face value, saying to them, what part of the hospital, and, and validating that and saying, I'm sorry to hear that, darling. What, what part of going to the hospital are you worried about? Don't assume you know what the, uh, that their answer is the same as your answer. You do, yeah. Like, so rather than saying, oh, well, I know you're afraid for them to take your blood, right? Like the last time. Don't assume that, I suppose. Just ask them um, or try not to assume that. I'm not saying don't, but just try not to. It's so natural to assume we project our stuff onto our kids, but try not to. And explore with them and say what part of it is. And, oh, right. Okay. And really listen and validate their feelings. Really reflect that back don't try to save them from the feelings or try not to. So none of us want to see our kids in pain. But I suppose what I spoke about a lot in my book was that, you know, when I had stomach aches as a child and my, because of anxiety and people around me told me they weren't real or you'll be fine. That was actually making me trust my body less because my body was telling me there was something to be worried about. So the most important thing is to validate and say, I'm sorry, you're worried about that, darling, or that sounds really tough. And 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 kind of help them to feel felt. Dan Siegel, this neuroscientist, talks about feeling felt, which is this idea of kind of being with them in the moment and letting them know that you get them and you understand and nothing they say is kind of out of bounds that it's okay and you're not trying to reassure them immediately this is not a time for problem solving when a child comes to you with an emotion it's a right brain emotion and you need to react with a right brain response which is an emotional response not a rational one so rather than oh but i'm sure when they take your blood next week or i'm sure the hospital thing would be mm. fine you know how it was fine the last time kind of try to that's you trying to make yourself feel better but and possibly them feel better but actually they can't go through the tunnel of emotion because we all go through tunnels of emotion and what will actually make you stuck in that tunnel is if you don't get met in that emotion and if your parent goes to the rational you'll be grand you're not you actually get stuck in the tunnel whereas mm -hmm. if your parent comes down to your level and goes tell me a bit a bit, bit more about that okay right okay and be really soothing validating the child will come to the end of that tunnel and then you can move to I wonder what would make it a bit easier. Do you know how mm. you found it easier when blah, 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 the last time remind them of the times that they've, they've, they've managed to get through something difficult, but you need to remain in that emotional phase with them during that time. 
So as hard as it is to know that your child is finding this very challenging and their anxiety is peaking in the, you know, coming up to appointments, I can completely understand how as a parent you would say things like, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about that. Now everything is going to be fine. But what you're saying is actually, no, say you're, you're right. There is a lot of worry. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about it. Like, yeah just unravel actually what they're feeling because what they're feeling is really human Mm -hmm. and really normal yeah and it could be that they're worried about something going on at school or something entirely different so you kind of need to check in with them one of the other themes that came out of the questions was this kind of uh parental unknown around how to support your other children Mm. there was lots of questions around guilt that parents can feel because they feel now oh all this focus and all my time and attention is being poured into the child with the diagnosis but how can I possibly still give everything I need to my other children but also how can I help my other children to process the diagnosis and what's happening for them because no doubt they're watching on to a sibling that they love and that they care for but also cancer is disrupting their life cancer might be disrupting you know that promised holiday or just a happy christmas or you know not to say that your child is is behaving selfishly but they are children and this cancer diagnosis within the family walls is mu- is not invited and it is impacting them and no doubt you're watching that you know behaviors will change across everybody under this roof and again you're the parent and you feel this obligation to be the person to hold it all together and to meet everyone where their needs are you know to feel everyone where they're being or as you said you know meet them all at their feelings an impossible task really hard absolutely I mean it's hard to be a parent to a number of siblings anyway because they have such different needs I think the first thing to say is that children are very adaptable and they're very strong, do you know? And I have heard from a number of parents whose children had cancer, the guilt that they felt for not, I suppose they were in that fight or flight mode and they're looking back at that now. And they were in that mode of, oh my God, my child is sick. They're all their energy resources, brain power, everything going into you know making sure that their child that they're doing everything possible that their child has the best outcome and of course when your resources are all kind of focused towards your one child who you who you know their their survival is at stake very often that you would you know you naturally you're going to divert your resources to that and it's very hard to kind of come home from that and go right let's organize your birthday party next Saturday darling to your other child or um you know and and I think that that mom that I heard that you interviewed um Orla was talking about like feeling like she wasn't there or that she didn't cope with it very well initially and I've heard from other parents saying I had one parent say to me that she felt quite guilty. She had just had a baby and actually like her, her, it was her older child that had cancer, but she felt she missed out on that bonding time with her baby. And so when she hears about, you know, mothers bonding with babies and that important part of, of, of attachment that we create with our babies, she always, she very often feels guilty that she didn't um, kind of, have the 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 space in her mind in her heart to actually you know do that and she has found it harder you know to kind of uh you know take that back up and and develop that relationship with her child i i I believe things are are much better now um and i suppose the awareness and the acknowledgement is important so i think you can't as a parent be like i think we have this like crazy notion that we need to be perfect at everything okay Mm. like you know we need to be perfect at our jobs we need to be perfect at what everything and like parenting somehow became 
you know, one of those things that we scheduled and became perfect at. And that is absolute rubbish because none of us are perfect. Our kids don't need perfection. That's why I love this idea of good enough parenting. Good enough parenting is a third of the time you're tuning in with your child and they're tuning in with you and things are going well. A third of the time is rupture where things they don't quite understand you, you don't understand them or else you do things you might be feel guilty about like not spending enough time with them or whatever you feel guilty about or else they're kind of miscuing you where they might be angry but actually underneath it they're sad or you know we all miscue each other at times we might say to our partner I'm fine when we're not fine do you know that's a miscue really and then a, yeah <laughs> do you do that too not at all though never <laughs> Um, and then a third of the time is repair and repair that this is what I always say to parents there is always hope for your relationship with your child I feel like and I'm very honest about this my second child I feel like I screwed up at times you know she you know I suppose I was going through more stresses in my life and things like that and then I learned more about my reactions and I was reacting sometimes in a quite quick way to certain situations and I feel like repair and I and I have really worked on repair with her and repair is literally where the most beautiful brain connections are built for our children where they then start to expect repair in their future relationships where you say to your child I'm sorry that I was that mommy shouted at you last night you don't say but you just say, I'm sorry. A but is not a repair or an apology. It has to just be a pure sorry or else you can apologize. And I'm not saying any parent with a child with cancer needs to apologize to their other children. What I'm suggesting is that there is always chance for repair because you only need to be doing this parenting stuff okay like 66% of the time. So remember I said a third of the time uh, tuning in a third of the time rupture a third of the time repair so it's it's about your intentions towards your children and I suppose explaining to the other siblings you'll you'll have a different level of comfort with what you say to them about what's going on with their sibling but I think honesty tends to be a really like a trying to be as honest and obviously developmentally appropriate you mightn't say this you won't say the same thing to a two-year-old as you would a 10-year-old um and also letting your other children have their messy emotions. I remember one of my children saying to me, mommy, I wish my sister wasn't born. This is when she was like upset at night. And she's like, I wish she wasn't born. I wish I was still the baby. And it would have been so easy for me to say, oh, but don't think, don't think that of your sister. You know, don't think that. That's a you know, that's not a nice thing to say. Many parents would automatically think that that's not a nice thing to say don't say that but actually it's important for us to let our children in within privacy with ourselves say the most difficult things and for them to say you know it's okay for them to grieve their old lives where they could just organize a birthday party or a holiday or enjoy Christmas without thinking about their sibling because their lives have that not only has your life changed but their lives have changed they're getting less attention from you um you know that and kind of saying to your child that it's okay for you to be angry towards your sibling or to be angry about cancer or to be upset and and anything you say to me, darling, is okay for you to say and to stay with them in that emotion rather than try to move them away from it, rather than try to say, oh, but I know you love your brother or sister. Of course they do. But, you know, they're allowed to have those feelings. And I think in terms of the like management of your other kids, when you're in that mode, I think making sure they're, you have other supports around to make sure their structures and their routines are in place as much as possible because we all know kids thrive on that mm. um so yeah and then if you can and this is only when when you have the space to have a little bit alone time with each other with every you know the other children whatever you can fit into your week uh it doesn't have to be every day 
whatever it is, you can say, okay, this is mommy time or like one child might be at an activity. Use that moment, that opportunity maybe to go with another child, go for a walk with them or whatever it is that they like doing. So it doesn't have to be big gestures, even just a, a little game at home or dance around the kitchen, something small that you're tuning in and letting them know that they're valuable, that you love them. You spoke about their feeling safe to have difficult conversations. Yeah. One of the questions came in was about those difficult conversations and feeling as though sometimes the conversations that they want to have with their consultant around prognosis or life expectancy is getting brushed aside every time it's being brought up and the expectation that you have to wait for this kind of three monthly review to be given the opportunity to talk about it is so nerve-wracking can you offer any sort of advice on actually how to approach those difficult conversations and you as the parent being able to articulate your fears and concerns to the consultant team forcing the the difficult conversation to happen yeah this is a a, a hard one in a way because I, i suppose if you can trying to ask the direct questions but I wouldn't necessarily do that in front of your child do you know Mm. what I mean like I think difficult conversations are best done between adults and not with children sitting there um I know that they very much try as children get older into their teenage years for children for teenagers and to take more control of those um those you know for them to be asking the questions more I remember working with a with a a teenager who who was sick she had another condition and what we used to do because she always felt like she'd walk into the appointment and then just like almost like lose the bottle and kind of I suppose would preparation in advance help would writing down what it is that you want to cover so that you can get a bit of control over the agenda I think 100% and I'd say that I used to say that to that teenager uh you know as well it's like you know she had a little notebook and I'd say this to parents have your little notebook and write down even between hospital appointments so so that you don't necessarily have to think about it the day before Mm -hmm. the appointment or the morning of when you're on the train or whatever you're actually like you know maybe writing little observations throughout and then you might kind of highlight the ones that are like most important and obviously then maybe you're bringing in like, you know, a number of things that you really want to ask questions about and and be like, I know sometimes some people find it easier to be more assertive than others. But if you just say, if you say to them, look, I just had like four things that I really want to kind of cover today because they're, they're things that I've really noticed in the last few months. And I really want to cover those. I mean, you could always set that at the beginning. Obviously, every consultant is different, you know, um, you're, you're conscious of the fact that they sometimes have limited time and for you know you might be thinking in your head oh I'm just asking a stupid question no question is stupid like your your experience is valid and you're you are the person who is relaying to the consultant how your child has been and you can offer some really invaluable information to them so you are like they are the the consultant who's treating your child and the nurses and all that but you are the person who's with your child every day and who notices these things so you are an expert on your child so to be able to have those difficult conversations and hear what has to be said and process that in whatever capacity you have as we covered in the first question processing might not be possible but to hear it to feel it to be met with that feeling and to then be able, I suppose, not to live in this kind of unknown, but maybe put plans around, okay, well, the next six weeks are going to be really challenging. Or, you know, just to have, to, I suppose it's a case of bringing in just some minor certainties as much as you possibly can and, and get some of that power back. Totally. I mean, in a situation that feels totally out of your control, it's, and that's why we talk about feeding your soothing circle because that is within your control which I know is hard when you're in survival mode so many questions came in no doubt there will be a lot more that didn't even arrive into um into us at this point but hopefully over the course of you know the next few months um 
Childhood Cancer Ireland are doing their best to support parents connect with each other, to have access to these sort of conversations, um, publishing different experiences on the website, being able to connect in a world where, you know, these conversations can happen. People can feel reassured that lots of this is normal if they're going through it, to hear other people's experiences and, and see themselves in it. How important is that? Just finally, I suppose, to wrap up, but from your expert, you know, mental health position, how important is that for people when they're going through a cancer diagnosis to be able to connect with others, even if it is just reading what happened to them or hearing what happened to them? How important is that for people for their own mental health when they can connect with others that are in the same boat? I think it's incredibly important for all of us as human beings. Like there's there's three kind of major tenets of self-compassion. And one of them is common humanity. It's kind of knowing that you're not alone, even knowing that you have a tricky brain that focuses on threat. Um, but knowing that there's other people out there that have gone through similar things and that your you your reactions are normal that you're okay that it's it's not unusual you're feeling this particular way or that particular way i know every parent of a child uh, with cancer might has a different experience and i did hear you know i've heard of some parents saying that it was it was it was or wasn't helpful for them to go on to like facebook groups or it it that maybe during the cancer diagnosis when their child was was quite sick that it helped them to have other parents there who were going through something similar and they formed communities with them but when their child then got better that they kind of like slowly but surely kind of maybe weren't as much in that community and maybe remained friends with one or two of those people that they really had a residence with beyond their the child's diagnosis and i but i i think this is so important and this is why i agreed to do this um immediately because this means an awful lot and um this is so important and i think like a podcast is not uh, listening to a podcast is not like something that a parent feels like, oh, my God, that's such a big pressure. I have to talk to other people or I have to join in this group or hear other people's like really difficult stories. You can you can dip into a podcast when you're going on your lovely self-care walk right now and know that you're not alone know that it's okay like what we say is you know i'm not alone in how i'm feeling it's okay to feel how i'm feeling right now whatever it is that you're feeling right now it's okay and you might be feeling a number of things you might be feeling a bit sad but you might be feeling a bit excited about something whatever like we all feel the way we do and the most important thing is to bring our hands to our heart and say may I be kind to myself in this moment, in how I'm feeling, because it's okay. Whatever way I'm feeling, it's okay. When you're a parent, all you want for your child is for them to be happy and healthy. And that's why this resonates so much for not just the people who've experienced their children having cancer, but also, as you've said before, for the, uh, the people around them that don't quite know how to support them and want to know, like, what's the best thing to do? And like food, as we said, as we've heard before, you know, making sure they have meals, you know, to eat or, you know, practical supports can be so useful. So, yeah, everybody gets different value out of connecting on similar on similarities. But I think a podcast like this, hopefully that will really kind of reach out to somebody during what they're going through and even just generally being a parent you know and how hard that can be and, and how we put ourselves to such high standards and just knowing that being good enough is absolutely enough dr Molly coin thank you so much for all of the wisdom and expert advice that you were able to share by answering these questions um, i really appreciate your time and your empathy and your knowledge and Thank everything you, that you shared with us today on this on this podcast. Thank you for being part of it. Thanks so much.
Thank you for listening to this Gold Ribbon Conversation. There are more Gold Ribbon stories written by those fighting childhood cancer on our website, childhoodcancer.ie, and you'll find a link in our show notes. If you can, we would love you to share this podcast across social media using hashtag Gold Ribbon Conversations as it can help more families to discover this show. This podcast was produced by The Brand Story for Childhood Cancer Ireland, hosted by Sinead O'Moore and sound production by Alan Breslin.